cards were out for a ball in his honor. And this pageant of the tenantry was the last of the great long-remembered dances that everybody talked about. And welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we watched the famous, infamous <laughs> Orson Welles movie, The Magnificent Ambersons, which is the fifth movie in 1942 i believe i will be honest this year has kind of been so boring i've lost count but that makes that sounds right yeah i mean agreed (laughs) (laughs) yes it is the fifth movie and the reason i say famous or infamous is because this movie is not what the director intended it to be and we will never get a director's cut (laughs) Yeah. Probably. Yes. There is an extremely slim possibility that somewhere in South America, there is a film reel that has not completely deteriorated, that has the third act of this film as Orson Welles wanted it to be. But most likely, that footage is just gone forever. And what we have instead is a pretty bog-standard family melodrama that just happens to have been directed by Orson Welles and totally falls apart in the last ten minutes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily call it bog-standard simply because it was directed by Orson Welles. So even while the story is very... I wouldn't even say cliched, but it's a family melodrama. The tone of the movie is in no way melodramatic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, happens to have been directed by Orson Welles is really underplaying it, because what you get is that when it's directed by Orson Welles, even a really boring genre of movie we have not had very good experiences with is still pretty impressive for large sections of the runtime. Mm. But it's, like you say, plot-wise is where it is its most. This is the story of a rich family at the turn of the 20th century that falls apart due to the modern world and, like, big emotional decisions It was apparently supposed to be a big, sprawling epic about automobiles, and is instead about kind of a rich dick that won't let his mom be happy. Yeah, who has maybe the world's worst case of Oedipus Complex. (laughs) Right. The movie, as you might imagine, is about a family called the Ambersons. And they're magnificent. Indeed. Although, Susan, I don't want to blow your mind, but I think the title might be somewhat ironic. Yes, I I think it is. They're fine. (laughs) They're also not, I mean, I guess they are in the movie quite a bit, but it's just as much the Magnificent Minifers. Right. And the Magnificent whatever Eugene's last name is supposed to be. Morgan. Right. Right. I don't know. I forget a lot about this movie already. 
because kind of the relationship drama is the least interesting part to me, or at least the romantic relationship drama. There's a part in Act 2 that gets a lot more interesting, but the sort of central, at least in this cut, drama of this thing is this multi-generational love story where the eldest daughter of the Amberson family when she was young was hooking up, eh, not hooking up because it was the 1880s and so they just kind of made eyes at each other. Being courted by. Being courted by (laughs) this guy named Eugene Morgan. And then he commits some sort of social faux pas, which I cannot believe is actually supposed to be him throwing a snowball against a window too hard, but seems to be that he threw a snowball against a window too hard. After which he is frozen out by her and she marries a kind of boring local businessman named Minifer and has a son named George, who everyone in town says is going to be the most spoiled brat in the history of the universe and end up kind of underplaying that. Oh, he's a monster. We see him as a 10-year-old dressed up as the most Little Lord Fauntleroy motherfucker in the history of the world. (laughs) Do you remember the illustration of Buster Brown? No, but describe more what you're talking about. So Buster Brown had shoulder length blonde curls and was wearing a big hat and was wearing what looked like a dress and little Mary Jane shoes, but was a boy. I mean, basically, George is dressed exactly like the original illustration of Buster Brown. What I think of when I see him dressed like that is the most famous painting at the Huntington Library out here in L.A. is The Blue Boy by Thomas Gainsborough. That is just a little boy that looks like there should be a dog next to him and then there isn't. Dressed up in... The wildest outfit. This outfit is great, but he's not literally wearing a skirt, which George is. That's true, and he (laughs) does not have the blonde curls that George has. Yes. But anyway, regardless... That outfit stands in stark contrast to George literally beating the shit out of another little kid and then cussing out that kid's dad when the dad comes to yell at him. And his family's like, hey, you've got to not be a little shit all the time. And he's like, nah, I'm going to keep being a little shit. And we cut forward to him in college when he's still a little shit. And he meets his love interest who is a lady whose name I need to look up on the Wikipedia page. Lucy. Lucy. Lucy is the daughter, it turns out, of Eugene, the guy that was originally courting George's mom. But George is kind of too thick to understand any of these relationship dynamics and instead just sort of blunders around being an asshole to Lucy and her dad's dream of building automobiles just because... Just because he sort of believes anyone doing any kind of labor is beneath him, and he is a jerk. I mean, yes, that is definitely true, because Lucy asks him what he's going to be, and he's like, oh, I'm not going to do a job. But he does seem to have this irrational hatred of cars, which is kind of like, this is not so much true anymore, but like 10 years ago, when your parents were all, oh, social media, Facebook, I'll never do that. That's silly shit that I don't have time for. And then, like, all of them are on Facebook now. It reminds me of that, except that he's 20. 
He should be all, cars are great, the future. Yeah, that is the wild thing about it, is that it is very much millennials are ruining avocado toast. Except he's like 20, which makes it just completely wild that he has this irrational hatred of cars. In his defense, though, even in this cut of the movie, cars have an irrational hatred of him back. Well, he started it. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, but because there is something there, but also because Lucy is smart enough to know that her father, who is now a widower, still has a thing for George's mother, she lets him call on her. Uh, and they go out driving. In his horse-drawn carriage. Right. And kiss when the sleigh overturns. And then there's another sequence where they go out driving in George's newfangled automobile in the snow and it gets stuck in the snow and George's not George's Eugene's Eugene's excuse me Eugene's newfangled automobile George is the one who gets stuck pushing it out of a hole in the snow like a small ditch in the road everyone else is very clearly enjoying themselves in the car and he is miserably stuck pushing it along so this whole section is, I guess, their sort of meet cute romance part, but it is very strange. Then we get into the actual, to me, meat of the film, which is the relationship between Eugene and George's mother after George's dad passes away very suddenly. Where we also get into this weird gothic horror psychological drama thing where Eugene's aunt and uncle have these bizarre hangups and start trying to manipulate George into behaving in ways they think will give them advantage in the family fortune. Well, and also we find out, or it gets confirmed because it's pretty telegraphed that his aunt, who is his dad's sister, has a thing for Eugene and apparently always has his aunt Fanny. George just attacks Fanny and thinks that it's because of her that Eugene is coming around all the time. Completely oblivious, apparently, to the fact that Eugene and Isabel, his mom, have basically been courting one another since before his dad died. I mean, since before he was born. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, they started over right under the, not even under the dad's nose. It really felt like the dad was just like, okay, sure, whatever. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> because he's not even in this movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's in like two scenes. I think he has dialogue once. He is such a non-entity that when he dies, people even comment within the film of just like, will people notice he's dead? <laughs> <laughs> The sort of bizarre thing about all of this is, like you say, that George doesn't pick up on this because he is so hostile to Eugene, like immediately, even before he ostensibly finds out there's that scene where he just talks about, you know what sucks? Cars. Oh, hey, Eugene, are you in the room having dinner with us? Hmm, cars suck. I think you should know that cars are the worst thing that ever happened in the world. (laughs) And Eugene's like, I don't know, maybe they are, but they're here now and we got to just do what we can with them. Anyway, I'll be going now. And then after that, his aunt is like, is this about how your mom and Eugene are super into each other? And George is like, they're what? I just hate cars. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Because he has thought that the reason that he keeps coming around is because of Fanny. And uh, no. Yeah. I don't think he even knows Fanny exists, to be honest. (laughs) 
poor Fanny. Yeah. But after that, we have this huge breakdown where George just cannot deal with the idea of his mother getting remarried and freaks out to a neighbor about spreading gossip that his mom is going to get remarried, which actually just means the gossip is going to spread way more. Eugene writes a very sweet and long note that essentially says, hey, you have a very strange and codependent relationship with your terrible son. I don't think we can ever be together unless you guys uncouple a little bit. George's mom gives him that note because it is very sweet and very well written and is a very emotional appeal for her happiness. And George just goes, nope, can't do it. You're mine. (laughs) And the mom goes, well, okay, I guess we're going to take a long extended trip to Europe so we don't have to look any of this in the face. And George, who has been asking Lucy to marry him, and she's been like, "Uh, I just don't think it's going to work out. My dad loves your mom. (laughs) And also, you're a toxic monster who is incredibly horrible to my family. (laughs) Right. There's this very emotional appeal where George, because he's a child, is like, I'm leaving. I'm really doing it. I'm going to leave. You'd better stop me if you want me to stop from leaving because I'm going away and you're never, ever, ever going to see me again because I'm going away. And she's like, have a nice trip. But then has a complete breakdown and faints after he leaves, which can be interpreted one of several ways. There's more clarity on it in a scene a little bit later, but she clearly feels something about George. Look, there is a long and illustrious history of women being attracted to shitbags. Lucy is just smart enough to not hitch herself to one. Yeah. Or is she? (laughs) I mean, it is weird and complicated, and to the movie's credit, I think it's supposed to be weird and complicated. And I feel like in the original Wells cut, it's even weirder and more complicated, and I like it even more. But that is a discussion for after we get through the plot. They come back from their extended trip to Europe, and Isabel, George's mom, is dying of Act 3 has started. And it's real bad. Like, she needs a wheelchair. But he won't let her have one. In typical George bullshit fashion. Right. There's also, like, a whole discussion between Major Amberson, who is the grandfather, who is the, like, one who made all of the family wealth, and the uncle and a couple of other characters about just all of the ways that George is literally killing his mother by giving her nothing to live for. He just does not allow her anything, does not allow her any space to be her own person, and that's what's killing her. Metaphorically and maybe actually literally. Yes. (laughs) And then she dies after Eugene tries to come see her and George is like, nope, she belongs to me. I'm a huge asshole. Goodbye. Interesting thing about how this actually worked in the original cut, because it's made a little nebulous in what we watched as to whether or not he is doing that because he's a dick or he's doing it because he really does think that it's not good for her. And there's a doctor who comes down and says, you know, yeah, it's probably not for the best that you see her today. That was apparently not in the original and was one of the few things other than the ending that they reshot because they didn't want George to look like that much of a monster that he literally wouldn't let his wife or his wife (laughs) kind of let his mom see the love of her life before she died. That makes a lot of sense. 
in that that scene feels weirdly disconnected with the scene with Isabel where she is calling for Eugene. She is specifically asking for him. Yeah. And it doesn't quite jive with everyone going, no, 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 no. George is really right. You really shouldn't see her. That happens just before it. Right. It's for the best. She needs her rest. She's about to sleep forever. She doesn't need any fucking rest. (laughs) This really is the section where the studio interference really comes to the fore. Because sort of the next thing that happens is Major Amberson... The grandfather. ...dies. And the grandfather is clearly not in his right mind before he dies. And there is this amazing shot where he is looking dead into the camera and starts mumbling to himself desperately trying to keep his sense of self while his mind deteriorates. And you're like, oh shit, here we go. We're in an Orson Welles movie. I am ready for this five minute long take. And then it just fades out after like 10 seconds. And you're like, oh, that's the studio. Right. Clearly we have tons and tons of this in the can. And they were just like, no, we're not doing this. It just fades out. And then the narration is, anyway, then he died and it turned out he had a lot of debt. And you're like, okay. Yeah, apparently he had made some bad investments in a headlight company. If cars are supposed to be the thing that's coming along and ruining everything, then how come investing in headlights wasn't the move? Which I feel like in a longer cut of this, you could do something with that. You could do something about how, in theory, there is a way to catch this wave and become part of the modern world and benefit from it. But it's like a mirage that every time you reach for it, it disappears and screws you. Because, ah, cars. But, like, again, we don't have that full cut. And so instead, people just occasionally mumble that cars are ruining everything while making terrible life decisions. Yeah. Then there is our last full-on Orson Welles scene of this movie, where Lucy and Eugene have this long discussion that is ostensibly about this story that Lucy is telling about a Native American chieftain who is just basically such an asshole that even though he's wildly talented, everybody puts him in a canoe and sets him out to sea because they just can't stand him anymore. And it's clearly about George and not actually about some Native American myth. And the way you know that is because Eugene presses Lucy to remember any of the proper nouns from her story, and she sheepishly admits, oh yeah, I kind of forgot all of those. Whoops. Because <laughs> I made them up on the fly to give you this metaphor about George <laughs> so you would understand. Yeah, he was such a pain in the ass that they set him out to see. But the clincher of it is that even though he was horrible, they then couldn't decide who they wanted to replace him. And so they just didn't. Yeah. And that's the thing is that he's awful, but he kind of wormed his way into her heart enough that she can't imagine replacing him with someone who is better. And that's the thing about there's a long and illustrious history of women falling for toxic men. I think that there is also just this larger theme of... Like, when they first meet at that party, they have a long discussion of this role that he has been slotted into because the Amberson family is so prominent and so rich that he just kind of wants to shrug off and doesn't want to pick up. I think in addition to, I think you're totally right that there is this sense of, oh, I also, despite all of that, I do still 
kind of want him or have some attraction to him. But I also think that there is this larger, he had a role to play in the community that he shrugged off because he's such a shit and no one else can pick it up. It's not that he is going away and now someone else will do this necessary job. It's that people put up with him because they desperately needed somebody to take on a leadership role to be that person that marched into the future. And he just wasn't going to do it. And now there's no one to do it. Oh, see, I totally didn't get that from it, especially because the entire community was just waiting for him to get his comeuppance. I think that there is like this sense that everyone in the community knew from a very young age he was never going to do it and thought he was a shit. But I don't know. I think that there is something in here about his failure to make something of himself, in addition to the attraction between Lucy and George. Because there's also all the different discussions they have about, like, what are you going to do? And he's just like, nothing. I'm going to contribute to causes. Good day. Uh, I'm going to continue to be a fancy lad. What <laughs> What are you talking about? Do. But sadly, his future as a fancy lad is cut short because they're penniless now. There's this great breakdown scene where Aunt Fanny just loses it that they're penniless now. And George quits his job as a law clerk that you didn't know he had. Well, he was going to start it. Right. And instead works at a dynamite factory. And you're like, oh boy, we literally got to the fireworks factory. What's going to happen with the dynamite? Nothing. Smash cut to he got hit by a car. Because cars hate him. <laughs> In between there, I am skipping over this weird montage where Orson Welles narrates about him wandering through the industrial hellscape that the city has become. That feels like very much an orphaned version of a much longer sequence, but it is still bizarre that you don't even see him get hit by a car. It's just smash cut to somebody saying, hey, this guy got hit by a car. And then there's a newspaper headline that might as well say main character of film hit by car. <laughs> or main character of film suffers freak theme accident. <laughs> also good. The newspaper is also kind of an inside joke because it's a cane paper, and you in fact see Joseph Cotton as the film critic best friend character from Citizen Kane reviewing something on the front page of that paper in another part of the front page, which really just makes it seem like a Twilight Zone episode where George is trapped in this car hell where everything is the guy who was courting his mom. This is the first Easter egg. Yeah. But they then, from that bizarre smash cut, do an even bizarre cut to Eugene at the hospital wandering out of a room with Aunt Fanny and going, well, I just got done talking to George and he's going to be fine. Lucy's in love with him again. He says he feels really bad about what a dick he was for this entire movie and that he realizes now I should have been with his mother. But sadly, his mother's dead. But I saw her ghost and she said I should fuck you, Aunt Fanny. End of film. <laughs> Besides the word fuck, I'm not joking. <laughs> You're... <laughs> That's why I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> it is so bizarre. Yeah. Like, 
I genuinely, unironically feel like this was the standing set for some other movie that they just grabbed Joseph Cotton, went, say the fucking lines, filmed it from some bad hospital drama they were going to do one day on the lot, just in, out, we're done. It feels so disconnected on every level. Set design, lighting, dialogue, theme, from the rest of the film. <laughs> I have never seen a studio-mandated ending that felt that disconnected from the rest of the movie. Yeah. And we've seen a lot of studio-mandated endings on this podcast. Yeah, that's true. It definitely is tacked on. That is the perfect segue into... This movie's an hour 20 and change, and the original cut came in at 148 minutes. <laughs> yeah, and they cut 40 minutes and then added back, I guess, 10, 20? Yeah, apparently even Orson Welles was like, okay, 148 is a bit long, and managed to cut it down to like 210. And then the studio was like, so this entirely bleak third act where we just sit in this family losing everything it has while cars destroy what once was America? I think maybe instead of that, they should all make up and be friends at the hospital. Yeah, and Aunt Fanny can finally have her dream, even though, again, Eugene has barely noticed she existed for this entire movie. The questions that arise are like, could Act 3 have possibly fixed the weird thematic stuff about this movie? Because this is a movie that occasionally remembers that its theme is that automobiles have destroyed the genteel society, but is mostly, as Orson Welles dismissively puts it, is just rich people arguing in a house. Orson Welles directing rich people arguing in a house is weirdly compelling, and you kind of wish they more effectively excised out the automobile stuff. Like, if we're not going to go whole hog with it, why do it at all? Right, because just cars seems like a weird thing for George to be hung up on. And if the idea is that there's this breakdown of the essentially aristocratic class structure in the U.S. that is brought about by modernity, it doesn't need to be specifically cars. Yeah. The argument with George and Eugene over dinner in this incredibly gothic living room that's so darkly lit. It's an incredible feat of cinematography because it's so sinister feeling. But then their argument is about cars? <laughs> that whole section, that dinner scene, the scene on the just absolutely bonkers amazing staircase of this house where George is, t I was going to say finally puts it together, but he never puts it together. He's just directly told the relationship between Eugene and his mother and loses his mind. Yeah. There are sequences in this that rival the best sequences in Citizen Kane for cinematography. Oh, yeah. There are sections of this where you're like, holy shit, the guy that directed Citizen Kane directed this movie. And then there are sequences where you're flat lit in a hospital <laughs> hallway and are just like, oh, off stage, everything resolved, don't worry about it. It's weird how effective some of this footage was reused, basically. Even with the actual thematic component of this movie just totally ripped out and the third act excised basically completely, it still works. 
it doesn't work as well as it could have, but the fact that it's still a functional movie given that is insane. Yeah, it's still compelling to watch. Yeah. It's not boring. It doesn't feel like a chore. Yeah, I mean, I do think that that's down to Orson Welles' directing. It has a really interesting tone. It has moments of pretty dark humor in it that are not the result of dialogue, but the result of how the viewer is taken into the situation. Like the conversation between Lucy and George where he tells her that he's leaving and she is smiling and very sweet and very conciliatory but she doesn't let him bully her into showing that she's upset about this because I do think in a way that while she's going to miss him and while it is going to be rough on her dad I think she also realizes that it would probably be for the best if this whole psychodrama stopped. Yeah. Uh, So full disclosure, we had so many technical problems and my recording got eaten by my computer being an asshole. So this is the second time we're talking about this. The first time we talked about it, we kicked around the idea that in the original cut is Eugene the main character. And with an extra day to think about it, I feel like in the original cut, Lucy was the main character. Mm. That she stealth in that third act where George would be completely destroyed and you'd just sit in the destruction of the Amberson family for 40 minutes would become kind of the audience surrogate and the voice of reason and would be the link between the two male ostensible protagonists of George and Eugene. And it feels like the biggest shame is that you just get these flashes of what an interesting character that she is in this cut. Yeah, because she never gets developed enough to understand really who Lucy is other than occasionally the confidant of her father. Yeah, but she still has these weird levels of insight. Like she is the most insightful Basically, in any scene she's in, she has the best handle on, like, the power dynamics and what's actually going on here. That's true. It feels like one of the things that is on the cutting room floor. She's still great regardless. It just feels like a shame because it feels like there must be more of her. Yeah. But that is also the sort of dynamic that the idea of this lost masterpiece is, in a way, Orson Welles gets to have it both ways. Because he gets this movie that's still pretty all right, despite all the studio interference. And he never has to, like, put up. It is possible that third act, certainly his sort of standard editor, Robert Wise, who also edited Citizen Kane, was like, I don't know, it was fine. Like, it wasn't that much better than the studio cut, is what he has always maintained. Orson Welles never had to actually display a third act and just got to spend you know, 30, 40 years before he died going, oh God, it was going to be better than Citizen Kane. It was going to be the best movie ever made. It was going to be the most damning portrait of everything wrong with 20th century America you could possibly imagine. And so everyone gets to imagine their own perfect cut of this movie. Yeah. Or is it that it's a damning portrait of 20th century America? Or is it a damning portrait of 19th century America and that 20th century America came along and swept away the last vestiges of this kind of aristocratic class culture? Who knows? Right. That is the 710 split that third act would have to pull off, right? Is that there's this opening monologue about 
like the good old days when there were still like horse-drawn streetcars and you could tell your girl what to make for dinner and just go off and live life slowly and comfortably. And you're like, is this ironic? Like, is this arch? What is this? Orson Welles never has to actually resolve that. Because there is no third act, he never, it never has to actually come down what side he's on there. He never has to make the 710 split between all of the things the automobile changed for the worse in American life and all of the ways American life was kind of already shitty before the car ever got here. Right. That he can just state, I got it, I did it, it was a masterpiece. And people can imagine, I can imagine someone pulling that off. And if someone was going to pull it off, it'd probably be the guy that directed Citizen Kane. Yeah. But we don't know. For all we know, we watch that third act and we go, God, he really did just hate cars that much, huh? (laughs) He didn't really think very deeply about, like, whether the servants were having a good time before cars came along. Yep. He just hated cars. Or maybe it really does balance all of the ways society was transformed for the worse by cars. And that, you know, you can't be too sad about the death of generational wealth. I don't know. And we never will. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) But that does make the movie actually enjoyable to watch if for no other reason than you can project onto it what you want. Right. (laughs) Because it's impossible to watch it without the context of, well, I mean, I guess there will be people in the world who will watch it without this context. But it's pretty well known if you're any kind of film nerd (laughs) yeah i feel like if you are watching the magnificent ambersons you know about the studio drama around it i cannot imagine anyone going magnificent ambersons that sounds like a fun title and just picking this up out of like hulu or whatever you know yeah no i don't foresee that happening I think the studio cut being so botched kind of helps Orson Welles again, because you can really feel just when it's him and when it's the studio. There is almost nothing that is a real effective blending of the two viewpoints or where the studio kind of slips something in and you don't notice it. The only thing I didn't notice on a first viewing was that scene where everyone says the mom shouldn't see Eugene was studio mandated and i still thought like oh that feels weird and ineffective i like i guess they had to do that or something but i didn't immediately clock it as oh this is a studio reshoot the way i did with the last scene right so you kind of get to take what you got of the orson wells cut on its own terms in a weird way because the studio edits are so egregious that you're like well that doesn't count that's not actually part of the film (laughs) Right. You can make that separation in your mind pretty cleanly. I don't know if that's a fair way to judge the film, but I think your brain kind of can't help but do that almost. Yeah. So as far as scoring this movie, I feel like, and and we already did it, so <laughs> in the last recording, yeah, that we'll never see the light of day. I said a seven, and my justification for this was that while it is a less cohesive movie than Mrs. Miniver, it is artistically a better movie than Mrs. Miniver. It's more enjoyable to watch. It has more emotional stakes, even though the global stakes are nowhere near as high. (laughs) Like, everyone just felt kind of okay through the entirety of Mrs. Miniver. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think sort of the way I ended up phrasing it last time was that Mrs. Miniver is the best possible version of a movie that was only ever going to be a seven. And this is a movie that was like aiming for a nine or a ten and didn't quite pull it off either because of studio interference or because Orson Welles just couldn't really make Act 3 work. We'll never know. Either way, though, what you end up with is a lot of an amazing movie, which still averages out to a seven. Yeah. It's also, I think this is a very low grade for us to say, watch this movie. Usually when we say watch this movie, we're talking like a nine or a ten. This is a movie that is just a little bit better than okay, because the studio really did screw it up. It doesn't actually fully work, but it's still really compelling. It's still not a slog. And there's really, really great sections of this film. Act two, or what is act two in the studio cut, which is most of act one into act two, I guess in the original Orson Welles version, becomes this amazing psychosexual, dramatic, tension, gothic horror thing of just everyone trying to play each other while going slowly insane in an amazing house that, like, really works. Yeah. So it's like a seven on score, but I think it gets a little bit higher of a ranking in this year's nominees. Right. Because I can say unequivocally that it's at least interesting to watch. For now, at least, it is my front runner. Even with all the studio cuts, even with the fact that it's kind of a mess... It's kind of a mess that feels like it's driving the art form forward in a way where Mrs. Miniver feels like a win of kind of bland competence. They did a very good job making a kind of meh movie that I did not particularly enjoy, but they did a very good job. And, like, I think I personally prize taking a big swing and it going weird like this over doing a good job with a kind of boring premise. But I don't know if I can super fault so far the Oscars for picking Miss Miniver over this. Right. Even though I think this is a better movie for my own personal idea of what a better movie is, you know? Yeah. So uh, for next week, we are watching Pride of the Yankees, a Lou Gehrig biopic starring Gary Cooper. Yeah, and it turns out it's our first big sports movie. We may have found something to dethrone boats as the most starting off on the wrong foot with me thing in film. I love sports movies. I don't. Here's the thing. Sometimes when I like a sports movie, I really like it, but it's usually because it's about something around sports and using sports to talk about something besides sports. When it is actually just the story of an amazing man who did a sport, I'm like, I I can't. (laughs) Goodbye, sir. I love them. I'm a sucker for them. They make me cry every time. Like, I cried at Mighty Ducks, too. (laughs) Well, yeah, but that's because they defeated the evil Icelandic team. Were they Icelandic? Yeah, the most menacing nation on Earth, Iceland. Yeah. You know how threatening Iceland is. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing scarier than Iceland. (laughs) We talked a little bit about 
D2 last time when we were kind of talking about how this is going to be a sports movie. And like, it did remind me to kind of go and look it up. And it is hilarious that I don't think they put any more effort into it than they're playing hockey. The natural enemy, the people who would naturally be good at it are, of course, Iceland, the people who have to deal with ice all the time. And you're like, that's not actually Iceland. Oh, the ne- our nemesis, Iceland. Well, they have ice in the name of their country. So obviously they're the best at anything that happens on ice. Yeah, that's just science. Yeah. Anyway, tune in next week to find out if David hates sports or boats more. <laughs> And if a team of ragtag kids from the suburbs can lead Lou Gehrig to victory in a huck. Oh, that's not actually the plot. Sorry. No, it has nothing to do with D2 the Mighty Ducks whatsoever. No. (laughs) And until then. This was a movie or two thirds of a movie, depending (laughs) on who you ask. Yeah. If you ask Orson Welles, it's not quite a movie. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. You'll excuse me. Fanny. Oh, Eugene. Isabel. Got to run down to the shop and speak to the foreman. I'll see you to the door. Don't bother, Sarah. I know the way. I'll come too.